Maha Rahulovadi, the longer discourse of advice to Rahula. And this is a sutta spoken by the Buddha to his son, the Venerable Rahula. And in this sutta, the Buddha is explaining to Venerable Rahula the contemplation of the body in terms of the four elements. <coughs> and last time we discussed the contemplation of the first element, that is the earth element. And here the Buddha enumerates, in order to show the nature of the body, he first enumerates 19 different aspects of the earth element within the body. That is the head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and so on. And also when he includes the phrase after that list, he includes the phrase whatever else internally belonging to oneself is solid, solidified, and clung to. This is called the infant. Here we should understand that the Buddha adds this because the earth element is actually included in all the parts of the body to some extent. In those parts where the earth element is most manifest, where it's dominant, then we speak about those parts as a representative of the earth element, like the head hairs, body hairs, and so on. But even in the fluids of the body, even in the wind element, there is also present, even in the heat element, there is also present in some way the earth element. The four elements are always, say, anyamanya pachaya. That is, their mutuality conditions for each other, they're always bound together, and in fact, inseparable. And then the Buddha, after analyzing the body into these constituent parts, he shows how the earth element is to be contemplated, or how it's to be seen with samapanya, that is, with proper wisdom, with right understanding. That is, one should see it as netan mama, this is not mine, neso hamasmi, this is not I, neso me ata, this is not myself. And as I explained last time, these three, you say these three prongs of contemplation, these three uh, points of contemplation are the tools that the Buddha suggests for knocking away the three deluded notions. That is, the notions of mine, I am, and myself. And those deluded notions arise from these three papanchas, three a springs or bases of conceptual proliferation that is craving or tanha, conceit, mana, 
and wrong view of ditti. And then when one contemplates the body in this way, or contemplates the earth element in this way, then the Buddha says one becomes dispassionate, or I would actually say here, maybe repelled or disgusted or um, disenchanted with the earth element, and one makes lust or raga for the earth element, fade away from one's mind. Here, this is actually a kind of, what the Buddha is explaining here is that a sequence that takes place in the course of contemplation. In other places in the suttas we have the sequence laid out in a more abstract form. Seeing with um, Samapanya, with proper wisdom. This refers to what we might call the basic level of insight, or vipassana. Because this is insight into sometimes impermanence, suffering, non-self. Or as here, it's insight into the fact that things are not mine, not I, not myself. And when this insight into the three characteristics becomes deeper and more powerful, then it brings about this experience of nibbita, which is a kind of revulsion, not in the sense of an emotional disgust, but it's, we might call it, an inward turning away or disenchantment with the things that one has been clinging to and grasping as myself. That is, one now, through right wisdom, one sees into the true nature, and now one becomes disgusted with it. It's just, I think, that the Sudhimaga uses <coughs> the simile of a person he might have <laughs> the corpse of a snake around his neck, thinking that it's a string of jewels, a necklace. Then suddenly he looks carefully and he sees that it's not made up of jewels, but it's the corpse, the body of a dead snake. And then he'll feel, well in that case it's really an emotional disgust. But in this case it's more kind of inward turning away through seeing the real nature of these things. And this experience of Nibita is explained as strong, the stage of strong or powerful insight. This is where the insight into the three characteristics has been become so strong that it brings about this well, this recognition of the danger and unsatisfactoriness, the misery in the five aggregates, and it affects this inward turning away, this um, revulsion or disenchantment with the five aggregates. And then when that disenchantment reaches its crescendo, its high point, then it 
issues in dispassion, viraga. The commentaries explain that viraga means the supramundane path, that is the four paths of liberation. But I think in this sutta, the Buddha has not yet brought it to that level, but he's speaking just of a kind of a more natural or fundamental stage where passion fades away from the mind. The mind becomes detached from the earth element. And as I explained last time, the key to this whole process of insight is indicated by the phrase, now both the internal earth element and the external earth element are simply the earth element. That is, we usually take this internal earth element, something special. <laughs> it's sort of like the crown prize in the world. <laughs> what we call my body. And the external objects are just outer things which are completely dispensable. But then we have a... <laughs> Somebody puts a nice meal of rice and curries in front of us, and when we look at it, again, it's external earth element. <laughs> but then we eat it, and it becomes digested, and 24 hours, <laughs> that external element becomes internal element. <laughs> it becomes part of the body. It's absorbed into the bloodstream, sent to build up the muscles, <laughs> becomes part of the tissues, and then now it's no longer external, but internal. <coughs> okay, so now we go on to the water element. And this is explained according to the same principles. The water element may be either internal or external then what is the internal water element? Whatever there is that is internal, belonging to oneself, that is water, watery and clung to, that is bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, the grease of the skin, spittle, snot, oil of the joints, urine, or whatever else internal belonging to oneself is water, watery, and clung to. This is called the internal water element, or we could say the liquid element, fluid element. And then the Buddha says, now both the internal water element and the external water element are simply water elements. That is, we have the water element belonging to the body, we think this is mine, this is I, and the external water is just something to be thrown away, used for our purposes. But, for example, I have this glass of water, <laughs> I drink it, first it's external, I drink it, then it becomes part of the body, then it's mine. Then maybe in two or three hours, <laughs> I have to go to the bathroom and I urinate the water, then it's just something to be flushed away. 
than its external water element. But the key to understanding this is to see that between the water element of this body, the external water element, when one penetrates their characteristic, they all have that characteristic of water element. Nothing really grade A or special about this water element. <coughs> and okay, now the sequence of contemplation is the same. And we come the fire element, or you could say the heat element. This too is either internal or external. Okay, the internal fire element, whatever there is, that is fire or heat, we could say, fiery and clung to. Okay, that by which one is warm, ages and is consumed. It seems to be, anyway, a belief of Indian physiology that it's through the heat element of the body that the aging process takes place. Maybe this conclusion was arrived at through the fact that when you cook food, then the food becomes um, soft and fit for eating. And when, say, fruits remain out in the heat, then they get soft more quickly than if you put them in the refrigerator. And so the heat element is considered that factor in the body which causes the body to age, to mature, and eventually when that heat element is fully, when its power is fully exhausted, then the body dies. In a sense, that's in a sense the cutting off of the life faculty. And also the heat element is considered the factor which is responsible for the digestive process. In fact, it seems to agree with science since digestion is the kind of oxidation of the food. And oxidation is the kind of slow process of heating. <coughs> and so whatever is eaten, drunk, in the Indian languages there are four different concepts for eating something. <laughs> food of one type is said to be eaten, food of another type is consumed, and other types of food are said to be tasted. But all of it gets digested because of this heat element, or fire element. And then there's also the external fire element, which will be manifest in fires, but also in any, any material object, there will be some degree of heat. In scientific terms, we will ex we'll explain it as the, the byproduct of the motion of the molecules. And so this heat element which is present in all physical objects, that is the external heat element. And both together, internal and external, are simply the fire element, the heat element. 
say that the heat element of the body comes into being and it's maintained by the heat of the sun. If the sun were to expire, then all of us would die and the whole earth would just become frozen. So this heat element in the body is dependent on the external heat element. And then we should contemplate this as it really is, in the same way, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. Then, in paragraph 11, we come to the Vyodhati. This is the air element, or the wind element. And what is the internal element? Whatever there is internally belonging oneself, that is air, airy, and plankton. And it seems according to the Indian physiology, the wind element is considered to be that factor in the body which is responsible for maybe the nerve which sort of regulates the functioning of the nervous system. I think even in Singular you speak, in Singular's medicine they speak about the bio-dhatu as one of the three humors in the body. And so the bio-dhatu is considered that which is responsible for our ability to move. There are certain types of wind elements responsible for the motion of the limbs, the reason I'm able to raise my arm is because through the thought process it transmits something to the nervous system which sends a burst of wind element through the arm so that the arm goes up. And the reason why we react to sensory phenomena, again, is because of certain other types of wind element in the body. So the Buddha speaks of these in terms of his physiology of the period. He speaks of upgoing winds, downgoing winds. I guess the upgoing winds are winds which go up into the head. Downgoing winds, the winds which go to the lower parts of the body, responsible for moving the legs. There's wind in the belly. That's when you have some digestive problem, then you really experience the wind in the body. Heaviness in the stomach, some belching, gas in the intestines. Okay, so winds in the belly, winds in the bowels, winds that course through the limbs. These are, we say, the nerve currents responsible for the motion in the limbs the in-breathing and out-breathing, and whatever else internally belonging to oneself is air, airy, and clung to. This is called the internal air element. And then both the internal air element and the external air element are simply the air element. We are surrounded by the atmosphere with oxygen, then we breathe in the air, that external air comes into the lungs. In the lungs, the blood picks it up and transmits the air through the body. And then the 
oxygen binds to the cells and then it becomes internal element. The carbon dioxide gets trans transported by the blood to the lungs, it gets breathed out, and then it becomes external el or air element. And so there's, there's this constant interchange going on between the internal air element and the external air element. And the plants breathe in the carbon dioxide, and then they breathe out oxygen, which we breathe in. And this should all be contemplated in the same way, simply as air element, and that leads to dispassion, uh, to disenchantment and dispassion. And then after mentioning the four great elements, the four Mahabhutas, in this sutta the Buddha adds another element which is called the space element, the Akasadatta. And in the suttas the Buddha speaks about the space element in a very sort of simple and common sense way. He doesn't speak of space as being in the sense of Euclidean geometry, whatever can be what defined by the intersection of two lines, but rather the space is just any, anything which is not occupied by visible, visibly occupied by another object. And so he illustrates the space element in a very commonsensical way. What is the um, space element? Okay, whatever there is internally belonging to oneself is space, spatial and functu, the holes of the airs, the nostrils, the nose holes, the door of the mouth, and that aperture whereby what is eaten, drunk, consumed, and tasted gets swallowed. That would be... What is the name for this? Esophagus? Esophagus. Esophagus. And that where it collects, that is the space of the stomach, and whereby it is excreted from below, that is the void space in the intestines and whatever else internally belonging to, to oneself is space, spatial and function. That is called the internal space element. And then outside of us there is the great space element, just all unoccupied space. And both the internal space element, the external space element are both identical, just empty space. Okay, now after the Buddha has explained here the sort of basic theme for contemplation with insight, that is the theme of the four great elements, now he does an interesting thing. He takes each of the four elements and instead of treating it as an object of meditation, he uses it as a kind of ideal 
for a, a kind of poetic figure for showing the ideal quality of mind that is to be developed through the practice of meditation. And each of these four great elements is alike in that each is, we could say, completely without preferences, without any favoring or opposition, without any prejudices or preferences. So the Buddha says to Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, the arisen, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your, re- your mind and remain. Or we might translate this, will not persist in obsessing your mind. But as usually when we make contact with objects, then we have a liking for preference for the agreeable objects, for things that are pretty, soft, delicious, sweet, sparkling, bright, pleasant, and for those things which are rough, harsh, bitter, foul, sharp, we have disliking aversion. And so in this way, because of forming these preferences, we become victims of attraction and repulsion, um, attachment and aversion. And the mind just swings back and forth between liking and disliking, out of balance. And so we become happy and elated when we meet with what is pleasant and agreeable and then when we encounter what is disagreeable and unpleasant then we are thrown down and we become dejected, depressed, miserable. But the ideal quality to be developed through the practice of meditation is the quality of upeka equanimity. And the commentary in explaining this passage, it uses an interesting concept, which is called, in Pali is called Tadi Bhava, which means, literally, it's the state of one who is thus, or who is like that. But figuratively it means the state of one who has perfect equipoise, or perfect balance of mind. The Buddha uses this word in the suttas, most often I think in poetic, in verse, in poetic passages. He uses this word to characterize himself and the arahants. That is, it's the state of one whose mind cannot be shaken or disturbed by the pairs of worldly opposites. And here the Buddha illustrates this quality by the earth. And this is the model or say, the 
paragon to aspire to in cultivating the mind. To have a mind which cannot be disturbed, shaken or upset by agreeable and disagreeable contacts. And why does the Buddha pull in the earth here for a simile, as the basis for the simile? The answer comes in the next sentence. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things on the earth, maybe people when they have incense, old incense, they'll throw it away, or if they have flowers that are somewhat withered but still sweet-smelling, they'll throw it away. And also they will throw dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus and blood on the earth. But when they throw these sweet, fragrant things on the earth, the earth doesn't smile and say, thank you, <laughs> throw some more, I like these perfumes and flowers and incense. And when people throw excrement, urine or spit, pus and blood on the earth, the earth doesn't say, wait a minute, sir, <laughs> what do you think you're doing? And become, it doesn't become angry and upset and get involved and fighting. But the earth just remains tardy, it remains the same, completely imperturbable, completely um, in complete equanimity. So the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted by these foul things. And so the Buddha says, when you develop meditation that is like the earth, then the arisen, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. They won't persist obsessing the mind. But it's not only the earth element which has that quality of tādi, of equanimity. Also the water element is like that. So you should, the Buddha says, you should develop meditation that is like water. So people wash clean things and dirty things. Well, actually, they usually wash <laughs> dirty things. Maybe, but sometimes I guess they would put clean things into water. What are clean things that one puts in water? What? <laughs> usually one puts water onto, onto, onto flowers. But anyway, we could use that as an example, okay? We put, we put water onto flowers. And also, but more typically, they throw dirty things into the water. And the water is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that. So the Buddha says you should develop meditation that is like the water, 
But when you develop meditation, those like water, the arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Then develop meditation that is like fire. As people burn clean things and dirty things in the fire. For example, they cook food in the fire and the fire doesn't become hungry for the food and say, that was very delicious, feed me some more. <laughs> and when people throw dirty rags and waste in the fire, garbage, in order to burn it, the fire doesn't complain and say, don't throw that into me. But the fire will just accept everything and will burn up everything. And then similarly, in paragraph 16, develop meditation that is like the air or like the wind. Just as the air blows across clean things and dirty things, it blows over excrement, urine, spittle, and pus and blood, but the air does not become horrified, humiliated, and disgusted. And similarly, well, then it's paragraph 17, similarly, develop meditation that is like space. Just as space is not established or fixed anywhere, it's not attached to one point or another. You cannot say that space comes into um, beautiful gardens, beautiful palaces, and space avoids garbage dumps, cesspools, and other dirty places. But space is everywhere. It's not fixed or attached to anything. And so when you develop meditation that is like space, the arisen agreeable and disagree disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Perhaps we could use another, another illustration that, basing on a, a verse in the Dhammapada, that the birds, when they fly across the sky, they don't leave tracks anywhere in the sky. When there's a thousand birds flying across, after they've all gone, you can't look up to the sky and say, these are the tracks of the birds. But when the birds are gone, then space is just completely empty and trackless as it was before. And so with the mind of one who is tadi, who has this perfect balance or equipoise, then there'll come pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, and there'll be experienced, felt, and known, but they don't leave any impressions or um, any kind of residual attachments in the mind. Okay, so now the Buddha has taken, at this point, the Buddha has taken these five elements, which in the first part of the sutta he's treated analytically, as a basis for insight contemplation. And now 
with the passage we've just discussed. He's taken these same elements and shown how each can be a, say, a symbol or a model for the quality of mind which is to be developed through the practice of meditation. But then the question might come up, how is one to develop this mind which is not bound to agreeable and and disagreeable contacts? How does one develop this mind which is free from attraction and repulsion, attachment and aversion? And now with the next series of paragraphs, the Buddha is going to explain a whole series of different meditation subjects, each of which is prescribed as the medicine or antidote to a particular illness or defilement of the mind. And so when one takes all of these meditation subjects together, then one sees that the point that emerges from the discussion is that there are ways of freeing the mind from its bondage to the agreeable and disagreeable. And now the Buddha begins this discussion with the meditation on loving-kindness, that is metta-bhava. This is the first of the four sublime states, or brahma-viharas, and the Buddha says to Rahula, develop meditation on loving-kindness. <clears throat> For when you develop meditation on loving-kindness, any ill will, Vyapada, will be abandoned. That is, the meditation on metta is the specific medicine for the illness of aversion or ill will, hatred or anger. And we could say that hatred or anger, when we have this pair, the arisen, agreeable and disagreeable contacts, which side does ill will or anger belong to? Which side? Disagreeable, right, the disagreeable contacts. And so, specifically, the disagreeable contacts with (laughs) disagreeable people, that causes ill will to arise. And so, if a person's mind is disturbed frequently by thoughts of ill will or hatred, then they should, to overcome that, they can develop the meditation on metta, loving-kindness, thinking, maybe being the first take. Well, the usual way I've explained many, many times is to take oneself, then a friendly person, a neutral person, and then finally one comes to this hostile person, this person one considers the enemy, and one develops the thought that may this person be well, happy, free from all harm and suffering. One thinks that this person is a human being just like myself, He has his problems, his worries, 
he has a wish to be free from suffering, to meet with happiness, and then reflecting in that way and thinking of this person, one develops a very deep and heartfelt wish for the well-being and the happiness of that person. And when one repeatedly cultivates over and over again this practice of metta, then all anger and ill will becomes eliminated from the mind and the mind is able to meet with any amount of hostile or disagreeable people without any thoughts of aversion or dislike. Okay, then next the Buddha teaches develop meditation on compassion. For when you develop meditation on compassion, any cruelty, any kind of harmful thoughts, thoughts of violence or aggression or the wish to harm or injure others, any such thoughts will be abandoned. This is called the meditation on karuna, which is the second of the Brahmaviharas. And so in this meditation one will think of people who are afflicted by suffering and then one feels a very deep, heartfelt empathy with these people and one inwardly has to experience and to share their suffering. And then when one experiences through a kind of inner exchange of self and others with these people who are suffering, then one wishes that they will be free from suffering and one feels this deep karuna or compassion for them. This trembling of the heart and this wish that they will be free from suffering. And as the practice of compassion is developed, then all these thoughts of injuring, harming, afflicting others, these cruel thoughts will be abandoned. Then, in the third place, the Buddha teaches the meditation on a quality called mudita, which we translate appreciate, appreciative joy or altruistic joy. This is the quality of rejoicing in the success, happiness, or good fortune and good qualities of other people, other beings. And this quality of mudita is specifically designed as the medicine for what is called here discontent avati, which has specifically the sense of discontent over the success and happiness of others. If one doesn't develop mudita, then when other other people are successful and have good qualities, then one feels resentful towards them. One is unhappy about it and one is envious and feels that one has to compete and surpass them to show I am number one. Let them all admire me. (laughs) 
but to practice mudita, one thinks that these people who are successful, happy, or have good qualities, these are human beings just like myself. And just as I would like to be successful and happy, to have good qualities, these people are the same. And so really, look at objectively, there's no significant difference between myself and those people. But one makes one's mind embrace those people just like they were oneself. And in that way, one can rejoice in their fortune, in their good qualities, in their happiness. And when one practices this repeatedly, then any discontent or envy or resentment will be abandoned. And then the fourth quality to be developed is upeka, equanimity. And here in this place, the Buddha mentions that equanimity is the specific antidote for aversion. But I think that there are other places in the suttas, and I'm certain in the Visuddhi Magga, <laughs> where it said that equanimity is the antidote to attachment. So maybe if people grasp the text only at the level of the letter and don't understand the meaning, then they'll become involved in argument. One will say, but it says here, equanimity is opposed to aversion. Another will say, well, it says in that text, equanimity is opposed to attachment. So, <laughs> the texts are contradictory, or this text is contradicted by that text. But if one understands the meaning, then one knows that equanimity is the mind which is free from both attachment and aversion. So maybe in one place the Buddha wants to emphasize the importance of being free from aversion. Another place he wants to emphasize the need to be free from attachment. Now I notice in this sutta, in the previous section, the Buddha, though he says, when he gives the illustration of the earth, water, fire, air, and fire. He says, just like these elements, one should not be obsessed by what is agreeable and what is disagreeable. But when he gives the illustrations, he's always illustrating with the things that are disagreeable. consciousness would tend to be averse to, to be repelled by. So maybe to keep keep consistent with that theme, here the Buddha mentions aversion as the, the opposite of equanimity. And though there are different types of equanimity, here, since equanimity follows the other three Brahma Viharas, we should understand that this is equanimity towards living beings, that is being free from preferences, favorites and favoritism, from 
liking some, disliking others, from giving certain preferences to certain people, and then showing disfavor to others. Okay, so these four topics of contemplation, of meditation, comprise the four Brahma-viharas. And now, and the Brahma-viharas basically are concerned with overcoming primarily the disagreeable, say the disagreeable reaction or aversion. And so that is only one aspect of reaching that state of tanti, of perfect mental balance or equipoise. But to reach that perfect balance, one also has to be free from attachment, attraction, clinging to what is agreeable and pleasant. And so here to overcome that, the Buddha teaches the next topics of meditation. First, the meditation on a supa, on foulness. And when the Buddha explains this in more detail, he'll explain how to contemplate the body in terms of the 31 or 32 parts. One examines all the parts of one's own body first and sees that there's nothing beautiful or attractive inside the body. And when the mind is grounded in that, then one can meditate on, contemplate the bodies of others and see that they're all just compounds of these different organs, bones, tissues, fluids, and one loses any kind of interest, sensual interest, in the bodies of others. But the meditation on foulness the Buddha says this, when you develop this meditation on foulness, then any lust, raga, will be abandoned. But though the Buddha uses just the word lust here, we should understand that this is specifically kama raga, that is sensual lust. But even though sensual lust might be weakened or attenuated, there's still the Bhavaraga, attachment to existence, to becoming. And this attachment to becoming is all based on the thought, I am, this is myself. And so to overcome this attachment, one has to develop the perception of impermanence. This is called anicca sanya. This is the insight into impermanence. And when you develop insight into impermanence, then one contemplates the five aggregates as subject to arising and passing away. And when one sees that the aggregates, the five aggregates, are constantly arising and passing away, then one sees that there's nothing within them that one could hold to and say this is my true self this is what I am therefore the Buddha concludes 
when you develop meditation on the perception of impermanence then this conceit this deluded notion I am will be abandoned okay maybe we will stop the discussion at this point and then conclude this discourse next time and if there are any questions on anything that was discussed today then please feel free to ask Excuse me? I would say that tranquility is not quite the same as this Tadi bhava. Tranquility is, you say, remaining calm or serene. If somebody has this Tadi quality, I'd say that they're tranquil. But this is, I'd say, Tadi is a much higher quality than simple tranquility. It's this perfect balance or equal poise of mind that the mind cannot be shaken by anything pleasant or unpleasant the Buddha just has not brought the six elements into this um, discussion right right here here the, the Buddha the Buddha introduced the discussion of the four elements or of the five elements because Rahula was developing vain thoughts about the body um, as I explained last week when he was walking following the Buddha on their way into the, the, the town to collect alms then he looked at the splendid beautiful form of the Buddha walking ahead of him and then because he was like a royal prince himself and he thought that the Buddha is like a king lion and I'm like a lion cub the Buddha is like a royal swan and I'm like a little a young swan the Buddha is like um, like a tiger and I'm like a tiger cub the Buddha is like a king bull elephant and I'm like a young bull elephant and so Rahula's in this case Rahula's deluded thoughts were focused on the body and so therefore the Buddha when he addressed Rahula he said specifically Rahula you should contemplate any material form as being not mine not I not myself and then when Rahula came to him later then the Buddha elaborated that by basing the discussion on the formula but there is the sixth element of consciousness and in some suttas the Buddha also analyzes that the water, uh, first element is water now if we take it as uh, if we consider the element in water yeah. how would you take it now is it the water it, that the water doesn't have to be frozen in any condition there will be some in, in any condition there will be earth element within the water the earth element is that element which is responsible for the solidity of the uh, of the object okay so now water 
let us say it's in a fluid condition but <laughs> there's a certain we could say impenetra- impenetrability in the water that if you compress it to a certain degree then you cannot compress it any further what you're coming up against what is resisting is the earth element in the water so hydraulics you can say that hydraulics yeah. I think it's the earth element within the water which functions as the basis for the resistance. Perhaps, yeah. I think perhaps so, but I'm not so sure what is involved. Water is made of hydrogen and oxygen, so they come together. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, then we will stop. And the next time we will finish this sutta, and perhaps at the time, then we'll start on number 63. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.